Welcome to 2021, where time travel isn't a thing. We would travel to the future, get technology and design pioneers from 2050 to teach us how to build a brilliant tomorrow. But that's against the rules of physics. Instead, we bring you the pioneers of today, tech enthusiasts, creatives, entrepreneurs, and listen to their individual stories, their purpose, and how they became the change makers they are today in their industry, and learn about what inspires them and how they function. This is the See You Tomorrow podcast. Welcome to the See You Tomorrow podcast. I'm your host, Katrina Logie. I'm a creative entrepreneur and a catalyst for change, and I get inspired by interviewing people who are creating change for tomorrow's world. The See You Tomorrow podcast is powered by Harbour Space, the university of the future. Find out more at harbour.space. Today on the See You Tomorrow podcast, we have Hannes Chopra, who is a professor at Harbour Space, also the founder of Rasa Future Fund, investing in fintech and insurance tech uh, startups, and is also an executive coach and advisor. Uh, Hannes, welcome to the See You Tomorrow podcast. Thank you so much. And we're here to learn about your story. So um, tell us about, you know, where you grew up first. And let's, let's talk a little bit about that and how you got to where you are today. With pleasure. I was born and raised in Germany. My parents were the classical first generation um, coming from India to, to, uh, to Germany in the end 50s. So my dad was one of the first actually scholars coming from India after Indian independence and the Second World War to Germany and then studied here, did his doctorate and uh, became a professor at the university in Bonn. And I was born in Germany, mm -hmm. in Bonn. Mm -hmm. And that's where I spent my childhood, where I grew up. Um, and um, yeah, and that made me basically being in this environment, being in this context, um, a very important role, I think for me played that my dad being in the university had a lot of time at home. So I was used to basically uh, having lunch together with my father and my mother. Okay. So, and we kept on talking a lot. So I think this uh, disease, which I'm sure my students suffer from of talking a lot, uh, it's somewhat in the family. Right. And I benefited a lot from that. And frankly, the older I get, the more I realize how much I benefit from that. As a lot of things come back, which then were just the talk. And I think the second important thing is I, we got introduced to an Indian musical institute mm -hmm. and an amazing lady who became our musical teacher or a guruma, as we called her. And this became an incredibly important part of my life and she became very important in my life as uh, what well, I think nowadays one would call this um, a mentor but she was she was so much more mm -hmm. as she opened up uh, the world of music uh, 
but also the world of I would say humanity uh, she had a son who was mentally and physically disabled she okay. was from India yeah and she had learned actually in the traditional Indian way Indian music still in in Bengal in East India mm -hmm. and um, had learned also and met um, the first non-Western Nobel Prize winner of literature, Rabindranath Tagore. Right. And um, so she had a very solid, she was an outstanding musician, a very solid education. Playing wi she, which in instrument? Indian instrument, sitar, sitar surbahar, yes. uh, singing. You know that Tagore created basically, he wrote over 2000 poems and all of these poems, he also made a music to them. So there's a special section in Indian music, you have folk music, mm -hmm. you have classical music, yeah. and you have Rabindra Sangeet, the music of Rabindranath Tagore. So mm. he managed to create an own category, wow. and she, of course, knew this also. And um, she came to Germany actually hoping for some treatment for her physically disabled son, Bapi. And, um, and then as she was there, she opened this musical institute, Tagore Institute. And um, my, my mother took us there. So it, at the age of nine, we started going there, mm -hmm. learning. And um, it became a really, really integral part of my life. Although with full disclosure, um, in case my parents should ever hear this, uh, it was very difficult for them to convince us kids, I have an elder brother, younger sister, to go there. And especially I was the big problem child because mainly we were meeting on Saturdays to sing. I'm a big fan of sports, of soccer. And Saturday was the soccer day, Bundesliga, the mm -hmm. German soccer league. Mm -hmm. So it was, I would say, one and one and a half years really, really torture as I perceived it. Right. And then it became like, uh, yeah, a very, very important part of my life. So I think these aspects played an important role. If we look further why I am, where I am, who I am, then these are important aspects. Right. So why was music such an integral? Why was she such an integral part of your life? I mean, how did she come into play? Um, look, she was... Um, an outstanding musician. So music actually, as I discovered, when I look back now, um, it's, um, it's a beautiful saying by Nietzsche that without music, life is an error. And for me, this sums it all up because music is such an all pervading universal way of expressing, communicating, listening, letting your soul speak and letting your soul also receive what others do in music. So music by itself, I think, is absolutely unique. And she as a person was, uh, was outstanding as a teacher, mm -hmm. as, a, as a mentor, advice giver, uh, in the way she taught, in um, the way she behaved with her son. To me was, I mean, incredible. Um, and her son passed away two years ago again, physically, mentally disabled at the, he was over 60. Wow. And for someone with these, 
um, problems, 60 is a very, very high age. And what really made him live and live and live was the love of his mother. She, because she dedicated her time. She dedicated herself, but you know, to a degree of honesty and openness and, and love. And he was always there. He was always at every concert, at every lesson. He was there. Um, I felt very close to him. Mm. He would also have, despite being, again, I'm using this word, although I don't feel comfortable using it, but it's what we described this. Although being disabled, he would have a memory of songs which would be incredible. So after a couple of years, when my teacher went back to India and I visited them, and again, a few years passed, we didn't talk, he didn't see me. He would recognize me by my voice and we would play this game. I would start a song and then stop. Mm -hmm. And he would remember the next word of the song. Wow. And this was like a selection of over 200, 250 songs. What sort of songs were you singing? These Rabindra Singhi, these are the songs from Rabindranath Tagore. And, uh, and he would remember them all. I see. So, um, um, so I learned, um, you know, I always say what I didn't learn from my parents, I learned from her. And for me, I think also as my grandparents lived very far away in India, and that was not a time when you would travel regularly. So I basically grew up without grandparents. So I think she also played and with close relatives. Mm. So I think she also took a certain space there um, just because there was a there was a hole to fill. Right. So in terms of what she taught you, was it was basically through music. And, and also, was it values as well? Of course. Look, she would, um, after this initial phase, when, when I was resisting, um, I would spend, you know, my day would look like after school, I would, and then she moved with her institute very close to our school, but pure coincidence again. So I would basically go out of five days, three to four days after school to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would play music. I would spend time with Bapi, her son, and come back sometime late home, um, do the homework, go to bed. It went that far that my parents complained about this, saying, look, we hardly get to see you. And um, uh, she, she somehow felt that um, I had a special relationship with him. Um, so she would start to invite, for example, kids of his class, all physically and mentally disabled. 15 kids, he went to a, and they would come home and uh, she would organize for everybody spaghetti, so I would help her cooking. And then we would try to entertain them and like, you know, try to be careful of the mess, which of course comes up with this. But I realized um, how much through this she, she gave a lesson to me. So she would know I would come. She wouldn't tell me. Mm. I come there. Suddenly there are 15 other kids. Mm -hmm. And um, and I was interacting. I was I, I was I was basically learning. So she had lots of those things where she basically. I would say created some moments of discomfort, but in a very, very overall warm and comfortable setting. So 
that actually I could learn and grow. And right. I learned so much from that. Okay. But you, I mean, she, she taught you many things. What in particular was it that you learned from her that you sort of bring in today? Look, other than music, um, uh, the, what true love means, mm. that uh, love is nothing mainly romantic, but it's purely an approach towards life, which means inclusion. Um, a couple of values when it comes to, um, to honesty, to um, service, dedicating yourself. Uh, there's this beautiful saying by Mahatma Gandhi, if you want to find yourself, use, lose yourself in the service of others. She was an embodiment of that. Mm. Um, and how much meaning is in a life of, uh, of that? And I would also say that she was, um, to an extent, fearless. I have hardly met someone. Okay. So I think this also had an impact on me. Right. So she was like a sort of second mother to you. You could say so, yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. And and your mother, she she was aware that you obviously had a good relationship with her. Of, of my mother brought me there. Yeah. My my um, <clears throat> my parents were made it, and it was a lot of effort, especially for my mother, who was basically driving us uh, around, in addition to all the other tasks she had. So they were very happy. They wanted this to happen mm. and uh, this relationship. So that was um, very much intended and uh, they still feel today very, very grateful and humbled that we had this chance that yes. she was exactly in this city during that period um, because there was hardly any other Indian musician at that time in Europe having a musical institute. So it was really rare. Right. How, how do you bring music into your life now? I mean, do you... Do you still listen to that music? Or? Oh, yes. Look, I listen, I practice, um, I, I, I play, I sing myself. There's not a single day which passes where music, we listen a lot of music at home. Uh, I play with my sons. Uh, we still have regular concerts, of course, now, at least for the last year. Actually, exactly a year ago, I had my last concert in Germany with my brother. We will do another concert, but virtually in May. Oh, um, right. So we will record from two, two different places. I will sit with my sons in Barcelona. He's in Germany and then it will be compiled. Well, let's see what comes out. Um, Reciting so the same music. Exactly. We will be playing the same and then um, uh, like hope that uh, a magic um, guy who knows how to mix things together Will, will apply his magic Amazing. Um, and uh, no music plays an, uh, a very important role in, in, in all aspects and yeah. again I find this as an expression for me it has actually it was a rule I made for myself when I was a student that any country I go whatever happens the one thing I take back is one song um, because I felt that you know through that you somewhat touch a bit the soul of a country and their people yeah and um uh and for quite a few years i um, um i kept on doing this 
Mm-hmm. So you understand culture through through music, basically. Uh, in a way, yes. Right. Yes. No, I mean, I'm I under, I'm exactly the same. I I'm all about uh, music and and sort of communicating through music. Yeah. So I, I do understand where you're coming from, and it's a shame we can't get you to sing on this on this podcast. <laughs> 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 We'd love to hear you sing, um, but uh, so it's great that you sort of brought your sons up as well to follow that music. So and also in terms of love and inclusion and how you bring up that into into your values. Um, do you, t- you obviously teach it here at, at Harbour Space as well about humanity and the importance of humanity? Well, you know, this course you're aiming at, I mean, I'm, I'm teaching here FinTech InsurTech. Yeah. Uh, also currently doing the module. And, um, uh, and after the first time I taught and some reflections and some things which, which happened in, with some of my friends, like in my personal life, I felt um, there is a deeper need than the functional knowledge of fintech, which of course I believe is exciting. But, and I spoke with Svetlana, the founder, mm. said, look, Svetlana, I think there is some other need. And if you don't mind, I would experiment, but we have to both understand it can be a big failure and perhaps it goes into something. And I, and I designed this module called Limitless Human Becoming mm-hmm. with the aim of providing a platform where students can reflect on two questions. Yes. What is life? Yeah. And who am I? And me basically facilitating this process. This is how I would really call it. And um, yeah, we were very lucky that uh, this course was very well received. And so it has become now a regular uh, part of uh, the university curriculum. And um, that's the second big topic I, um, I teach. You know, when I say teach, it's a bit difficult to say to teach because um, uh, actually I learn at least as much as I teach in this course. Yeah, um, I think teaching is about learning. Absolutely, um, I agree. Mm. I agree. That would be my my definition of learning. Yes. Teaching forces me to really understand things uh, in the best possible way and then engaging people in a dialogue and by that learning so much, not only about the subject, but also about them. Mm-hmm. And I find this is a privilege. I think yeah. it's an absolute privilege to have the chance to look into what other um, people are thinking, students are thinking, and as there's also an age gap, it's usually always like visiting a new country. I mean, every new person is like a different country because it's, it's just so different how they would think. Yes. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's how this other course came in. Okay. Because, I mean, yes, I mean, what the great thing about, if you mention something to Sletlana, she'll, she'll, she'll say, yes, let's try it. Why not? You know, so she's very open to kind of like people kind of creating, suge- making suggestions and her Absolutely. actually putting it Absolutely. into action. Um, but, you know, in terms of the, the we'll talk about the other course, um, FinTech and insurance, we'll talk about those uh, two topics. But um, what are the students actually learning from your course about, you know, um, the next 10 years of being, you know, belong to us as humans? 
you know, what, what, what are you seeing that people are gaining in terms of knowledge about the why question? Look, um, sorry. Yeah, no, um, um, and, and what, what is their purpose, actually? Again, like the, <coughs> the overall purpose is really to have a platform to think, reflect and learn about the question, who am I and what is life? And uh, it is a mixture of a lot of theoretical input, which I try to always bring across in a practical way. So we talk about um, uh, Vedanta, the ancient Indian philosophy. We talk about Stoicism, um, the, um, the Greek philosophy. We, we talk about Shaolin. I had in the first course also a Shaolin monk, uh, Shi Hing Mi who spent two days with the students. We apply the Japanese Ikigai purpose concept. Yeah. Um, we do different activities um, on fear setting, on uh, managing your energy. It's lots of activities. The main driver there for me is that everything which I come up with has some practical value. So it's input, but then applying it. So it's really, you know, like a, like a necklace of pearls. Mm -hmm. You do one activity, you have one reflection, do another activity, another reflection, you get some input, do an activity based on this input, another um, pearl. And so my wish is that um, it gives a chance for every student to have a better understanding of what life is about and who they are. And sometimes it's even more important to know who they are not. Yeah. I think and also yeah. my hope is that whenever life gets tough and it gets tough, that's part of life, the nature of life. Mm -hmm. um, and actually me calling it that life gets tough is already a label which is not justified, but just to make this simple, that they remember um, there is some videos, there is something to read, there is places they can go where they can get some deeper insights and find inner balance again. And they don't have to use any external measures, whether it's drugs or alcohol or anything. But my wish is that in this moment they recall, ah, you know what? I remember in this course we spoke about this and let me look at this again. This what? is my hope. Yes. Um, so that it's not just the cause, but it's like a kind of reminder that um, there is other ways to reflect on life than running away from reality. Yes, which I think so many people do. Yes, yes, true. But, it, but it's great that you're bringing this in, and especially now, because people are, since I, the pandemic, I would say, are looking more inside themselves to figure out what is it they really want to do and what is their purpose in life. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So I think, you know, um, in terms of the fact that you're teaching it here at Harper Space, I think it should be taught in every school. I agree. I agree. But, you know, I'm also sure five to ten years from now, it will be an uh, obligatory course everywhere. And ideally even starting at uh, in school. Yes. Because it's hardly too early to go into this reflection. I think so many students come out of school not knowing what they want to do. Yeah. And, you know, and they carry on through life, you know, just taking a journey. But letting that journey happen rather than actually 
knowing what their journey is. So I think the fact that you're given that, giving them that opportunity. And do you sort of, you know, in terms of the students, what are the results that you're seeing from them taking this course? Look, um, I get a lot of a lot of overwhelming, positive, humbling feedback. Um, the first course was basically two years ago. And also from this class, whenever I see, meet students, they all recall this time and how transformational it was for them. Um, and that, frankly, for me, is the most important thing because the judge of our life can only be we. Everybody is his or her own judge. So um, I'm very, very like grateful about this. And apart from what I get out of that mm -hmm. um, during this course, which of course creates also a certain bonding and reflections which go far beyond the usual one, uh, what I see and hear is that it's very beneficial for students. Mm. So you, do you feel like you're guiding them? Um, I think I'm helping there. I hope they realize that at the end they should guide themselves and they should see this as an opportunity. Yeah. And why this is so critical is because in the system we grow up, um, consciously, subconsciously, we make everybody permanently exposed to other people's opinions and we make everybody consciously or subconsciously assume that if other people are happy with me, then I'm good. It starts with parents, then kindergarten, then school teachers, then university professors, then your first boss, your second boss, your third boss. So, and, and the message there is, look, you should act in a certain way, then you get good grades. You should act in a certain way. You get promotion, you get more salary, you get this, you get that. And I hope that with this cause, we can break this a bit and say, you know what? You don't have to act anything to anyone. Mm -hmm. It's your life. Yes. You live it. Yeah. And it's your choice if you let other people dictate how you feel. It's your choice. Mm. Start making it your choice. Yeah. Own don't it. be a victim of your own life. Yeah. So stop this pattern for yourself and just start living in a different way. Yeah. Um, that you let whatever comes from outside either happen to you or you close up to this and you say, no, I'm fine. Um, so th that's why this is, I believe, really, really important to have this reflection. Yeah. So it's called limitless human becoming. Exactly. Yes. And did you create the, I mean, did you create the course yourself or did you look at other people that were teaching? No, no, no. I created myself because I didn't find any precedent. Um, and those which came closest were not completely applicable as I felt. So I created it myself. And frankly, it's all the time work in progress. So every course for me is learning. Mm. My approach to, to teaching um, is the first time I would teach the same thing, 90% the same as I did before, I would stop teaching. Because that means that I'm not learning. Mm. And if I'm not learning, mm. then I have basically betrayed the main mission of teaching, as I believe. Yeah. I have to be the first one who goes with the mindset of saying, I know nothing. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's really a course which 
permanently. It's very different to how it was two years ago. It's very different to what it was a year ago. Um, because I try to embrace and learn and reflect what worked well, what didn't work, what did I miss, which journey we took where I was not prepared with some input. And um, so that's, uh, yeah, so I developed it myself. Um, there is a few now courses which come close to this. And anyhow, the whole journey of personal development in the last couple of years has a like has really a strong uh, growth and importance. Um, so there's more and more which is happening. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting how, you know, your, your father was a teacher. Yes, he's a professor. Yeah, he was. He he's, was. He's professor. now, exactly, he's now in pension. And um, your mother, which, was she in any way teaching? She has been, yes, she's been working. Uh, she actually studied medicine, worked in this field. And then she was working for Voice of Germany, Deutsche Welle, the, um, you could say the German BBC, of course, a much smaller scale. And there she was in the South Asian department and working on um, satisfaction of listeners and uh, getting their inputs and then uh, looking at what could be interesting for them in terms of programs. I see. So she was kind of creating content. Yes, exactly. And they're, they're still based in Germany. Yes, they are based in Germany, okay. in Bonn. What was it like growing up in Germany for you? Uh, it was, look, it was the, the realities were different. Um, in our school where we grew up, I told you I have an elder brother, younger sister. We were basically the only non, um, I'm not sure whether only non-Europeans or perhaps even non-Germans, but for sure non-Europeans in a school of 1,000 kids. Unimaginable today. Amazing, yeah. Uh, and that was in the beginning of the 70s. And... Um, How did that feel? Hmm? How did that feel? I have to say overall it felt... Um, uh, it felt in a way good because we had very, very... I had very um, caring, mindful teachers. Mm -hmm. um, there were instances which were which were difficult, um, whether it's um, whether it's a situation, or they then appeared to me difficult, be difficult uh, that you would be talking to friends and they would start talking very negatively about foreigners, and then I would say, look, I'm one of them. No, 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 no. You're one of us. We're not talking about you. And then would continue. Mm. Um, uh, there were situations like um, in German schools, you were basically, you had religious education, either Catholic or Protestant. Mm -hmm. And um, and we had to decide. And as we are by background Hindus, mm -hmm. so my dad was told that, look, your kids, what we do with them? I mean, they are Hindus. Um, where do we put them? He said, look, I don't believe in that God can be limited. So I would be happy if they can join your religious lessons, uh, which then turned out to be a problem. It, it, it had to go up to the to um, to higher levels to be decided that we can attend. So my brother and me, we attended the Protestant mm. um, religious education and went to church uh, with the class. And my sister wanted to do the Catholic one and also went to church. 
Um, but you know, these were situations you, I cannot imagine nowadays. No. But um, that was the reality then. And of course, it was also a time when being a little bit of darkish features, um, you would be noticed on the street, in a bus, uh, again, unimaginable today. But that was the reality then. And Germany now is so multicultured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, very different. It's very, very different. But, you know, overall, I have to say, very, very nice experience um, uh, and uh, very, uh, very warm, very positive uh, upbringing. You felt include and included? Basically. Absolutely. Absolutely. I felt included. I realized what real inclusion means the first time I was in India, where I had never been before, but it was a new experience that nobody watches you when you walk on the street, nobody looks at you in a certain way. So that's where I realized, okay, there are some limits to how you feel included when you're in Germany. Again, now this is not the reality. And um, that was also something I felt when I was in Russia, that nobody looks at you because just people are very, I mean, it's just multicultural. Right. So, so uh, yes, tell us a bit about, you know, your kind of work experience, because um, you, you worked in Russia also. I worked in Russia, yes. I actually went to Russia with, um, uh, I had some initial work experience with uh, uh, chemical company Biostoff, um, where, which was an education. Uh, it was, it's a special German educational degree and approach. Duale Ausbildung, as they call it, you spend a few days in a company and parallelly still study in a, in a practical school kind of college. Which is what they try to do here. Uh, yes. Which not try to do, it's what they do. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. You're so right. And, um, and then I studied and then I worked for Allianz, actually. Mm -hmm. um, well, I was two years actually managing this musical institute of my teacher. And then I studied, then I worked for Allianz. 16 years. Okay. And uh, with Allianz, I went then to Russia also. Yes. As we did a major acquisition there, initially minority, then we took over majority, I became CEO. So it was an absolutely fascinating journey and a bit unexpected. I never planned or aspired to be a CEO. Mm. Um, and then I left Allianz, but I stayed in, in Russia and with a short interruption, then joined the largest Russian banks, Bearbank. Right. And for them, created a company from scratch, a general insurance company. Okay. Because you yes. studied economics, didn't you? But you. I studied economics, yes. And then insurance? Was that something you were sort of... I mean, how did you get into insurance? <laughs> That's a great question. So when my friends from university heard about this, they thought, look, what is wrong? You're the last person we could have ever imagined ending up in insurance. Uh, and I'm sure insurance is also not the segment which has been waiting for you. So they were laughing about it. I was fascinated um, by the person who became my boss and one of my mentors later. Um, and I was fascinated by the opportunities still possible in insurance. And what I liked from the beginning, not understanding a lot, but what I really liked, the truly social mission of insurance, which basically is we can insure if we have many risks, we can help the one in need because many people are paying into this. And now in this moment, the one in need needs it. 
And that has been the origin of insurance. And I love this as a concept that um, a kind of, you know, inclusion, helping the one who is in need. Mm. Um, and this was all which fascinated me. And then really I learned on the job um, and came in. It was the period, uh, it was 96 when I joined Allianz, when still the international footprint of Allianz in some regions was very limited. Right. So I was working in the business development area and we had like eight years of acquisitions, greenfields, expansion. I mean, incredible, unheard of. We grew from, I think, a presence from in two countries to in 28, um, uh, like business volumes, 30, 40 times higher. Uh, it was an incredible journey and it allowed me to um, well, do acquisitions in, in Russia, in Egypt, in Poland, in Bulgaria, in Croatia, projects in which didn't materialize, but still learning in South Africa, in Israel, India, Pakistan. Um, I mean, you name it. Which areas of insurance? Um, this would actually be all areas of insurance, life insurance, health insurance and general insurance. And then in one country it would be more one segment, in another country another one. So it was an incredible learning and journey. Uh, and a very, very entrepreneurial period, actually. Of, of, of insurance, basically. Of insurance and of starting new businesses and um, uh, expanding into new areas. Right. So are you still involved in investing in insurance companies? Um, I have, as one of my, my activities, I manage an InsurTech fund, which is a pre-seed, seed, early stage InsurTech fund, mm -hmm. private equity. And um, uh, what we are looking at is we invest in early stage companies which are changing the value chain, are really addressing an issue which, which is impactful. Mm -hmm. which is meaningful, mm -hmm. um, where there is, of course, a chance to to earn a return and um, where um, uh, where the founders are really committed to what they're doing. OK, is that what you look for? I was going to ask. Absolutely. That's yes. what I look for. And I have a, my 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 LP, like the, the main investor. Um, we are a very lean fund. Uh, that's a future fund, as it's called, it's very lean, just has one employee, which is me. Everything else is outsourced. And as it's early stage, there's not so many things you need to check because there's an idea, there is a business plan. So you need to check some legal things, some document, uh, document things. And the rest is anyhow, to a certain extent, a bet as you're mainly focusing on a founder team and their ideas and sometimes they have an MVP, sometimes they're just developing it. Um, and we decide those things like really in a short phone call. And then we then I go and uh, and invest and keep the relationship. And how many companies are you working with at the moment? Um, at the moment, we are about to close a few more. We are at closing with them 11. Right. So in terms of investing in, in startups in the insurtech and fintech area, you're really focused on, on the people. Yes. I mean, that's the nature, frankly, of 
seed, a pre-seed seed, because that's frankly all you have. Mm. And um, it matters to me that um, wherever we invest, we really make a difference. There is enough capital, I believe, for all kinds of projects. I want to make sure that those projects which really have an impact will get some funds and, uh, and that's where we go in. So we usually like to be involved in a, in a, in a real issue. Um, so we have, a, we have a company in the portfolio which um, provides for very little money, three to five euro a month, agricultural insurance for small and medium sized farmers in, uh, in Africa in two countries. Nice. Which is usually a business which is very difficult. Mm-hmm. Usually the underwriting process is like takes ages. And that's why most of the small and medium sized farmers in the world are not insured. But for them, it's existential because every farmer, usually another 20 to 30 people live on the, the, the crop. Uh, people who live really that the crop can be sold. So losing one year because of, um, because of draft or because of, because of too much rain of crop is a tragedy. Or there is a company, uh, we're discussing this company also in class now, uh, which is providing small credits, home loans mm-hmm. for in India for the low income population. People with an income of a um, couple of thousand dollars per year who would not be able and because of they, uh, them earning a couple of thousand dollars a year, they don't need to file a tax declaration because they're below the income tax threshold. Because they're below the income tax threshold and they don't file a tax um, declaration, which they don't have to, it's not illegal, it's proper. They don't have a tax ID. Because they don't have a tax ID, they do not have a digital identity, but they don't have an ident- identity with banks. So banks say, we can't give you a credit. Right. And then banks are expensive. Mm. So a usual loan would cost around $1,000 operational costs inside a bank. So you won't give a loan which costs $1,000 of $3,000. It's mm. just not Viable. equivalent. Mm. So that's why the small ticket people got, get nothing, although they could afford something. So this startup, for example, is an intermediary mm-hmm. connecting uh, those low income people who want to get a sh- small loan. Mm-hmm. And loans are small, $2,000, $3,000 but good enough to have a small first apartment on your own with your family and then get this money from banks and provide this to, to such customers. Right. So just two examples. So this is what I mean with addressing something real, something important um, to, to improve somehow how everyone lives. Right. So you're actually into kind of like working with companies that are helping people who are, you know, in need of help. Basically. Absolutely. But, but, you know, look, for me, um, that is finally what technology allows us to do. That is finally where globalization could have benefits for everyone. When a project which is somewhere in India can get funding by a fund anywhere mm-hmm. um, and where people in India get access because of technology mm. saying and this whole process is digital yeah um look now i can get access i can become part of the financial community that is the true beauty i believe of technology and globalization yeah. we just have to go this step now 
yes. and really make sure this happens. Otherwise, um, it'll turn against us because the inequality will increase yes. if we don't use it in this way. Yeah. So that's why I feel quite strongly about this. So making a positive impact. Absolutely. And you particularly focused on India or you focused um, around the world? No, it's really just founding teams. Like my, again, my, my investor is absolutely flexible. We are, he's an amazing human being and really wants to, to, to create good in the world. And, um, um, uh, and of course also earn something with this, but in this order and, uh, like he's open to any project I come up with. So we have projects, frankly, all over the world from India, um, to uh, Israel, to Africa, to um, um, probably one company we're still discussing in Pakistan. Um, so it's not limited to a certain region, um, but where there's a need and we feel it's relevant, we go in. Okay, and you're working in an agile way, so it's just you collaborating with other people? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely agile. Okay. And that's also, you know, where I come in and offer founders to look. Um, uh, I have made enough mistakes in my life already to know a little bit of what I want to avoid. So perhaps this is useful for you. Yes. So usually that's one of my offerings to the founders when they look around with whom do we want to work. They say, look, I'm not uh, a legal entity and some representative of a fund. Uh, but I'll be there if you need me and mm. we can talk about things if you need to open up doors to some insurers because you want to get your solution to them. If you need anything else, I'll try my best. So um, I won't intervene, but I'm here. Okay. And at least to most of the founders um, where we are invested, it speaks to them. Okay. So your experience with um, insurance and, and fintech, um, I mean, over the, over the years, how have you seen, you know, from your experience working with insurance companies in the past, how do you see that the, you know, the, the, the area has, has changed over, I mean, apart from digitalization? Oh, look, it has, it has changed and it needs to change so much more. Uh, I told you about the fascination I had for this initial Insurance is a solidarity scheme. And if we want to, you know, put it a bit philosophically, it comes back to inclusion. Um, and over time, insurance companies have, in my opinion, moved too far away from that general idea. In, and because of that, insurance and insurance companies have started to create a life on their own. I'm sure I feel safe to ask you if you have an insurance um, and to ask you whether the process of buying this insurance was a positive one or one you don't need to repeat and whether the same happened when you had a claim. Mm. The usual situation is it's not a nice experience. No. Moreover, you have paid money and you got a piece of paper called here's the insurance policy. For you, as a customer, you think, oh, now I have someone in need next to me when I really need them. You file a claim and suddenly you realize they're doing a whole new due diligence on me. Mm. Now they're checking as if 
I have an intention to betray them, but I have paid my money to you guys. Why can't you treat me like a client? Yes. So there is a few, you know, misconceptions where the, the experience for the customer has not been a nice one. And their changes are happening. And they're, of course, technology is an enabler. And their insurtech companies can also make a huge difference and are making a difference. So I see lots of changes in the insurance industry. And this change is accelerating. Okay. I mean, if COVID did one thing, then for sure accelerating this trend. But do you think, so basically what you're saying is uh, they're making it more transparent in terms of doing... They're making more transparent and much more... Um, and transparent means also using a language a normal person understands. Yeah. If you read an insurance policy, it's impossible to understand. It is impossible to understand. Yeah. Um, but also making the product speak more to you, you know, that you realize, ah, yeah, this is really solving an issue I have, but uh, you don't need to study actively to understand what is actually this product about. Mm -hmm. So there's really changes happening in all areas on the product design, on how it is sold, on the claims handling journey, uh, in all areas. Right. Yes. And also, I mean, I'm sure since COVID, I mean, you know, since the pandemic, for example, my, my brother's, he's owned some bars and restaurants in London. He's um, suing a massive uh, insurance company who are trying to wriggle out of paying for their cover. Business interruption. Yeah, yeah business interruption. Yeah. So they put a massive court case against AXA Insurance Group as yes. an example. But I mean, does that happen a lot? Uh, it happens, unfortunately, a lot. And I mean, the example you came up with, there is many court cases in many countries going on where, where companies like your brother, uh, restaurants, bars or entertainment places are suing insurers by saying, look, we've been paying for X amount of years, expecting you to pay. Um, and now there is a pandemic. Yeah. Now you don't pay. Insurers have, of course, just, I mean, has of course have of course their arguments um, saying that look by the logic of how you design an insurance policy only the risks which are specifically mentioned can be calculated so even if a pandemic is mentioned but it is related to those pandemics where we know what they are if a new virus comes by default you can't price it Mm. So I'm just bringing this argument, you know, not to 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 fall into this um, into one sidedness. So insurers have their arguments and still. Now you have the situation you have insured this customer. He has paid his premium. What do you do when in doubt you go towards the direction of the client or you go towards the direction of not really and with most of the insurers who are at stake, I don't want to generalize for everyone, but for them to pay this amount out is not a financial question. It's a matter of principle. In other words, if they would pay it out, it wouldn't even move the needle on their annual profits, mm. but it would create a precedent. Mm. And, um, but you know what I'm describing you, you're, you're so right. How can this be? That is absurd. When you buy a product and 
when this product would be in need and imagine all the insurers would have paid what it would have given reputation wise to insurance companies people would have rediscovered insurance saying my god now i know why i've been paying this amount all the time yeah you know there was the positive example of wimbledon who for over 25 years i think might be even longer are paying an event cancellation insurance and this is not cheap yeah but finally last year they got a payout and it proved to be such a right decision because we talk about huge amounts immediately which are then not there yeah could insurers have done a similar approach and agreed on saying look let's put customers first it might not be completely uh, correct for whatever reason perhaps legally perhaps we are right but no it didn't happen and that is sad that mm. is just that is just sad do you think i mean like in the in the insurance uh, policy do, do they actually um have written if, if a pandemic happens it look again the wording is not very clear and you know, legal persons would be able to argue. But you see from the behavior of insurance companies how they react. They are insurance companies who pay. Um, and like one of the, the, the big German, one of the market leading companies, Talangs Group, Talangs HDI, Hook is also a brand they have, they decided to pay. And the impact it had on their renewal rate and attracting new customers. Mm. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Like companies are saying, wow, now I will also do it and I do it with them. Um, and there are other insurers who did not pay. So which is an indication that it was not crystal clear. Mm. And, you know, and then, and then slowly the circle closes because if you use this very weird specialist language and you're basically giving this little bit of bad feeling to the customer, to be honest, I don't really understand what I signed, but let's let's trust. Yeah. Then I don't feel very comfortable if then in a moment of need, and I mean, this is such a moment of need and I don't have to tell you, you explained the story of your brother, mm. but you imagine a person like this whose livelihood, the livelihood of his family mm -hmm. depends on the bar, on the restaurant, on the club every day. And these are not high margin businesses. So mm. these are not people who have five years of savings accumulated and can easily sit at home, put their legs up and relax. Yeah. It's low margin businesses. Yeah. So every month really matters. Yes. I, and again, I mean, I've been a CEO myself. I know how difficult such decisions are, but I don't feel very comfortable the way it has been handled by those insurers who said, no, we're not going to pay. And again, especially those where the financial impact would be marginal for them. Have you seen this a lot where they don't pay? Oh, yes, there's quite a few. I mean, I'm following this. There's, there's quite a few lawsuits uh, going on uh, in, in different places all over the world, actually, because this is a universal problem. And um, uh, the good news is, again, that there are some who are paying or saying, look, and that will sort itself, you know, out in a certain way mm -hmm. because customers have a choice. They see it. Yeah. They say, look, OK, I learned my lesson. OK, so with the pandemic, you're particularly talking about. Exactly. I mean, exactly the impact of COVID. Mm. And, you know, when you talk about business interruption, 
I mean, is there a more imminent, concrete example than the pandemic? I can't think of any. <laughs> when on earth would you, and you're saying with Wimbledon, when on earth would you ensure an event cancellation like Wimbledon? Yeah. It has to be such events. Yeah. Or maybe a World Congress, for example, last year. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, so they have to ensure, have those, you know, they have to cover those events, don't yes. they? Yes. And that's what's written in the policy. Uh, but what you're saying now is, is the way insurance is changing is they're making it more easy to understand. More easy to understand, more accessible. They are, you know, companies. There's one of the, it became a unicorn, Digit, a company in India, a digital insurance company, end-to-end -end digital. Um, and the CEO, who is a former colleague of mine, uh, Kamesh Goyal, they introduced a system that all their communication with policies, with, uh, with customers, their policy, their marketing, everything, every document will be read and checked by 12-year-old kids. And they explain what they understand. And if they can explain, they bring this communication to the customer, not before. Amazing. Yeah. And this is happening more and more, um, that, that it becomes... Um, uh, it, we change the equation. It's an unequal equation otherwise. Mm. An army of lawyers and experts sitting in the insurance company and one customer. It, it's an unequal game. Yeah. So I, think, I think people get lost in it, don't they? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I certainly do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, do, for me, signing up to an insurance company, I, it doesn't make me want to do it with all the paperwork. And you know, and that's the other thing. So I believe in future if insurance does not manage to become closer to become a love product, it will be very difficult to survive as an industry in mm. general, mm -hmm. because then people will only insure what they really, 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 really have to buy and need. But otherwise they will say, you know what, better not. So the industry has to change a bit like that. Exactly as you described this, this, this mentality of something inside tells me, is it really necessary? Mm. You don't understand it. You're paying money. Who knows what will happen if you need them? And also, you think how much the insurance companies are making and, and how often do they pay out? Yes. Yes. You know. Yeah, exactly. So, it's, as you said, it's not in balance, is it? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, how are you kind of, you know, what are you actually teaching? Tell us, you know, about the courses you're teaching at Hyperspace. Uh, we spoke about Limitless Human Becoming. Um, I'm teaching um, FinTech, InsurTech. I have another, well, syllabus prepared on, on leadership, but um, this is up to the, 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 uh, um, the leadership of uh, Hyperspace to decide. The FinTech, InsurTech one, um, it's a lot on what well, some financial basics, of course, on uh, how companies work, what is actually happening in the financial sphere, what are opportunities there, and then bringing in as many use cases as possible so that okay. students see what is actually happening there and um, are able to talk to founders question them on the problem statement, question them on whatever is there. Um, and I try to bring always a couple of, uh, of uh, founders of diff different stages of their development mm -hmm. um, as a company. Sometimes 
even if it's, it's FinTech 1 and then usually six, nine months later is FinTech 2 module. And then in FinTech 2, which is happening now, I bring one or the other founder whom I had at FinTech 1 uh-huh. to describe what has happened since then. You said and shared with us, this is what your challenges are. This is what you're working on. Looking back, what of this has happened? What are new challenges which came up? You know, to it's like, a, you know, go into the factory of what is really happening in companies. Yeah, real life situation. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, and then I bring in some theory which is related to the practical aspects. Uh, we talk about risk management. We will talk about company valuations, how you do due diligence. What does it tell you? Um, this module is a lot dedicated to how the financial world is in a deep change and transformation towards where I don't know, but it's deeply changing and transforming some of the classical rules, um, which financial markets used to have don't apply anymore. And, um, and this is where I'm trying to make students aware that we live in an unusual situation. Um, so look at financial markets, understand that certain things are um, um, somehow are upside down, mm-hmm. but see the opportunities. And one of the big opportunities now is there is capital in abundance, very low interest rates. So there's mm-hmm. hardly any risk-free way to invest money mm-hmm. and all this capital is looking for some ways to be deployed so there has been never a better time to start a company and at the same time and i think the students are seeing this uh, some of the the founders we spoke to to found a company in a certain sphere let's say fintech or insurtech yeah you do not need to be a financial or insurance expert. You need a clear problem statement. And very often the people from outside see this problem statement much more than the insiders. They got used to it. Yeah. So it's no coincidence that um, quite a high percentage, I would say more than half, up to 70% of the big and fast growing InsurTech companies and partly also in fintech, but it's more in the InsurTech side, are founders who do not come from the insurance sphere. They've worked in, in other. They've worked in other spheres, yeah, which are much more technological or customer-driven or whatever, and look at it with a fresh glance and say, "Hang on, how can this be? Let me dig into this. Let me look into this." Uh, go deeper, go deeper, and then start doing something. So that's the other message that I'm telling students. To start something, if you have a problem statement, mm. go. Yeah. Don't wait for degree A, B, C, or you want more experience, or I spent five years in a big corporate, and then I'm ready. No, now is the time. Because we really live in unusual times. There's lots of capital available. There is still a lot of gaps between what people experience in certain industries, let's mm. say the, the, the car sh- sharing industry. Yeah. I mean, I still grew up in a time to order a taxi, my goodness, you call at least a day before, there's a couple of cars available by this one taxi company, then they come, super expensive, mm-hmm. it was a luxury item you, you, you have, it was not a commodity. Yes. 
And now you stand, uh, click, click, click. And your taxi turns up. Incredible. Yeah. But this is now on car riding, you know, on, 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 on taxi. You imagine the same kind of revolution mm. in insurance. Mm. On demand. On demand. Just as an example. So what happens in, in our times that people get used to a certain technology like, like this Uber, Freenow, Cabify. And they start more and more asking, why can't I have this with my bank or yeah. with my insurance? Yeah, you want to just click a button, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the opportunity because they're not coming quick enough. Yeah. So, but this opportunity is for the next couple of years. And at the same time, you have lots of capital. Yeah. So this window will close in five years, three to five years. Yes. So one of the main topics I'm trying to encourage is... Um, if you have a problem statement, go. Just go and try mm. and fail. No problem. Yeah, it's 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 not a coincidence that the most successful founders, if you look at successful big unicorns and look at the average age of the founder, it's in the mid 40s. Mm -hmm. It's a myth that, you know, this 19 year old geek uh, is the right person to immediately it doesn't mean that you can't build a great company when you're 25 no what it just says is experience and failure matters exactly so better start something even if it's not sure you fail yeah as long as the rules are rules are clear and everybody who invests knows this money can also go bust at least learn from it and do the same and fail again and then do the same yeah but you know take this now this is what 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 is the opportunity of our times and build a good team absolutely that's the most crucial one actually yeah it's the most most crucial one because you know on the team aspect and this would be something i would discuss a bit in detail if we would go for this leadership module when you have a team you have to make sure that one plus one plus one is four and not even three and not two because if it's three, you better stay on your own and keep arm's length relationships because it's too cumbersome. Look, working with other people is tiring. So you make sure you create a group where you together elevate yourself, which means you have certain rules, you have certain ways of how you resolve conflict. You're radically honest to each other or brutally honest. You really approach this in a proper way from the beginning. And this is a topic, you know, many founders don't look at when they start. They're excited about the problem. They go to the closest of their people, friends, sometimes family, brother, sister, start a business, don't realize that now they've put even more eggs into one basket. Mm -hmm. You don't only lose a business, you will have conflicts with your family, with your close friends. Manage this well. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, very important point you mentioned. This part, don't wait for the first conflict. When humans work with each other, conflicts are a necessity. Just make sure you manage them. Or there is this nice saying a good friend of Israel told me. He said in Israel, they say this, if two people are in the room and have the same opinion, one of them is not necessary. That is why you would have a team. Yeah. But then you have to manage this process. Yeah. You need different skills. Absolutely. Uh, because I think also when you're you know managing a startup, the the challenge is you think oh my god I, I can't do everything you know so I need somebody to to sort of support me on this or absolutely 
you know, I can bring this to the table and, and they are, you know, bringing their own skills and it's kind of, it's what you need. Absolutely. And you know, that's why it's interesting you mentioned this. That is one of the reasons why not the industry expert, in my example, in InsurTech, or many non-industry experts become so successful with InsurTech, because the one thing you know when it's not your business line, you have endless humility. You know what you don't know. Mm. You're much more inclined to bring in people who are better than you and where you will listen to, because you don't know. Yeah, which is where the, the business mentor comes in as well. Absolutely. You're right. Have you always had a business mentor throughout your life? You started off with the woman I, who ran the school. Uh, look, I would say so, but this was, you know, my, my attitude. Um, I don't think many of them would know or recall or would classify the relationship as a business mentor relationship. For me, yes, it was. Um, and my... You know, it's a bit a question how far you take it. My, my approach is I try to learn from everyone. In a way, each one of my students is my mentor. Yes. And, uh, and that's how I have looked actually at, at my life and my situation. So that's why, and every founder I work with, where we've put in capital and they would consider me as their mentor. Actually, I learn at least as much from them I hope perhaps they get from me. Um, so that's why I think it goes very much in both ways. Mm, give and take. Absolutely. And it also requires that I can only be a sensible, useful mentor if I never lose this curiosity and ability and humility to say, this is your problem you are telling me. I don't know your problem. And I'm not guessing what your problem is. So tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. That is for me needed to be a good mentor, I believe. The moment I stop this and I say, ah, you know, I remember the story you have, 1984, this is what happened to me. I have stopped in a way developing myself and might not be now, but that will mean that I'm limiting also my role as a mentor in future. Mm -hmm. So actually, they need to talk about the problem. And you're, you're just there to listen. Yeah. But look, you know, look, I'm soon or not soon, but in like half a year, I'm 55. The gap between the current generation and the older ones, I always laugh about this or tell my parents that, look, if you think you don't understand me as your son, because we live in different worlds, you have no idea how close we are. You ask me how it will be when I'm your age with my kids. We will be like on two different planets. That mm. is how, how, how fast the world is changing. Mm. So I just cannot even pretend that I have really an idea what's going on in the, in the head of a 25 year old. I, I can't. And the more I would assume, the more I limit this person and I limit myself because I'm not learning from this person. Mm -hmm. Meaning I'm not really useful to him or her. And they are also not really getting anything because I seem to preach to them. Yeah. That's why this has to be always a kind of um, um, passionate curiosity. Mm -hmm. And that I think is a prerequisite for um, any mental relationship.
Right. So you're, you've just studied to become a coach? Yes, exactly. Two and a half years ago, I started, yeah. Why, why did you suddenly change your path a bit from owning Look, a company? It was to... uh, in my role, still when I was a CEO at Sberbank Insurance, uh, I decided to do this executive coach education with a great company in Munich, Bossert Associates, where now I'm a partner. Because I thought, oh, that's great. I want to explore. I want to learn more. Um, and let me work on myself. For sure, it will be useful. I had no idea I would ever do anything professionally with this. It was really like, let me go into this. And the more I went into, and there's a lot of practice we do in this, uh, in this period, and uh, it had two effects. Number one, I really got fascinated by the power of, uh, of coaching mm -hmm. and because we had so many peer-to-peer -peer coachings and we had to come up with a topic and then somebody in the group would coach us, there were lots of topics I could discuss with my peer coach, uh, Anna, she was my peer coach and, um, and there's so many things I reflected on because I had to come up with something, you know. Um, so it created double clarity. It created clarity on me understanding, wow, there is this powerful tool where you can really work on people, with people and on yourself. And um, hey, I mean, you, more and more, what is it actually what you would want to do now? What would work? And the result of both of these things was that I got incredibly interested and curious about working more with teams but not now as a CEO, but from the side and applying what I've learned and applying all the mistakes I made um, in a constructive way uh, through the, the methodology of coaching. And then also, as I told you, I do a lot of work with, with, with management teams on leadership development. Mm. You have a transformation as a leadership team. Um, let's discuss, let's talk what is, what is the challenge. And we look at ways how to address it. And then I would work with the team or you want to assess how is your corporate culture? How can you improve it? Okay, let's work on this. Let's do this. So all of those activities related to humans and their interaction, I find fascinating, just fascinating. You know, it's a bit like my slogan is um, with everything I do, I want to make others shine brighter that's nice yeah and because this also makes me shine a bit brighter i learn something mm. i learn from every coachee i work with from every client i work with i learn something but i would love to make an impact directly on the person not one business plan or one 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 balance sheet mm -hmm. but something with the person which is different because of the interaction i had this gives me a tremendous amount of gratitude, humility, and sense of purpose. Yeah, so really what you liked working with is people. Yes. And the, and the people who are creating their businesses, it's very much you're focusing, targeting them as a person, to make them a better person, to give their work more purpose, and, and also, more, I suppose, more success. In Absolutely. Way. Yeah. So it's fine-tuning the person. Yes, you know, uh, I hope it is fine tuning. If I put myself into my shoes when I was 25, 
it was much more than just fine tuning. So I hope it's different with this generation, but I can say for myself, it's been, uh, this is, you know, in a world which becomes more and more technological, where the impact of applying really your humanness, creativity, uh, resilience, ideas into making the needle move, working on human is the one main asset and task we have. Mm. Um, and it's more and more important. You know, when, when I started to work in insurance, accounting, underwriting, it was people's work. There were people sitting, we still had these stamping cards, you know, where you, 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 you make accounting and you calculate. All of this has been automized. So there's lesser and lesser activities for humans, mm -hmm. which are automatic or robotic, because robots and machines will do it. Mm. We are needed in areas where it's really about our creativity, our idea, being really there and giving it all. So in that way, working on helping people to shine brighter, in a way, is probably one of the most important things to do in our time. So you really you're focused on humanity, humanity with technology. Yes, absolutely. And that's what you're combining in terms of all your, I mean, your leadership course, your, your coaching, your mentoring, your startups, you know, helping startups think about the leadership behind it. Absolutely. So it's, it's really like zo zooming in on that. What are the most common problems you see in terms of, you know, like people starting their own business? What do you would say was the most common Look, problem? Look, we, we, we touched a few. Uh, let's assume you have, you've, come across first really coming across a major problem you feel strongly about let it not just be an academic exercise it has to be something where it's connected to you that you feel i've come across this issue and it matters to me i want to solve it why is this important when the going gets tough you will otherwise drop it so you really have to feel the problem statement is the main issue in the beginning secondly the other problem is how do you approach human interaction, this team aspect? What do you do with this actually? How do you create from the beginning certain rules that we all know what we are talking about and we will solve conflicts, we will not take things personal. The third thing is how do you work on, you know, in business you have two main levers. One is strategy and the other is culture. Two main levers, why? Because when you leave the room, these are the two things which stay. So you need to work on those two aspects. People very quickly usually discover the strategy part. They completely neglect the culture part. And a culture has to be deliberately created, built, and then reinforced. If you don't do it deliberately, it will be there because culture is nothing which cannot be there. It's just not the one you want. Mm. So that's the, 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 the third aspect to know. I want to deliberately create a culture which is based on respect, based on trust. Well, OK, but then you have to also show how do you live this respect and trust to everyone and how do you make sure everybody feels this? Mm. So that would be um, that would be the third aspect. This would be the three main things I would see, especially when when companies and founders start. Mm. And that's why you get problems with, you know, in terms of communication. 
and absolutely and also burnout because there are no people are not setting boundaries in terms of what they do what they're supposed to do and working in a startup culture you're so right and you know and there were where you know i mean you will have so many founders who say i want to create a culture of ownership it's okay how do you make this happen yeah i think i have a style you sit once in a or twice in a meeting with them which i often do and just observe and they tell you look i'm so overworked burnout i don't have the right people they don't take enough of my plate and sometimes when they allow me i even record the meetings and then i share them i say look this is how you talk this is how you reacted to this idea where is your culture of ownership if you would be your employee would you feel empowered mm. what is it that you have to change that you allow for ownership not just the words but what would be this conversation i just recorded and shared with you we will play it now you will say it again you know very often the problem is with the founder himself or herself not understanding if you really don't want to burn out give space again we live in a time chances are you're surrounded by absolutely brilliant people we don't live anymore in these times of huge gaps you know you have an accountant and somebody who has studied and they did an mba another mba everybody's capable mm -hmm. so don't limit people yeah and get rid of you know i also grew up in a certain culture how companies are managed and you always need to have control and you give the tasks mm -hmm. no a leader in 2021 has has two tasks one is identify the problem second give space to your people and help them to use the space that's all mm -hmm. don't go in don't come with solutions don't comment on them and so this is what i very often see that um, the challenges come by the inability to actually understand some basic understanding of how you are of self-awareness and yeah. you know i can tell you the in, the reaction is usually always the same people are shocked when they hear their own recording and the comment i give to that i say okay now you listen to that again forget it's you you are the employee put yourself in the employee's shoes and by the way we will not listen to the recording i will say these words to you and you will tell me how you feel good and just this role play yeah really makes them feel role plays are quite powerful that yeah no this doesn't feel like an invitation to speak up mm. and take some part of the share mm. so, and also ego i mean ego yeah that gets in the way a lot absolutely i think people don't need to have to learn to manage their egos i think that's a big topic yes that's an eternal battle and you know that is especially a battle when sometimes this drive to do something where some side of this evil works for you in the situation when you're with others you have to take this part also back so it is you know this understanding when does what apply and is right not always it's good to show certain aspects but there are some other qualities are needed and that is a that is a reflection that is something to to figure out mm -hmm. and what i can say however Founders are increasingly open-minded for that. I have more and more founders 
who come to me within the first three to six months of their company saying, uh, can we discuss how you can help us on the leadership side? This was not the case even three years ago. I see. So that's how it developed. That's how it's developing. Absolutely. And again, you mentioned before COVID. COVID, I don't like to say helped, but helped this in the way because people have understood that um, COVID has been a major challenge towards human resilience and meaning. Yeah. So in startups where you give it all, you can't meet, you don't have this hype. I mean, people are exhausted. Yeah, you mean remote working. Exactly. And there, of course, many founders much quicker realized, look, I got to do something. So what are they doing? And, and do you think this is where the, the coaching comes into play? Absolutely, absolutely. Look, what it means is to uh, take time to discuss amongst each other the how. How will we communicate with each other? How do we feel? Mm -hmm. Are we, do we have an environment of psychological safety where I can speak up about things and I will not be judged? Uh, is this welcome? Um, including just a few very simple things. Do we have some offers on mental health for people who suffer? Mm -hmm. um, do we offer one or the other once a month resilience workshop for our employees or founding team? Mm -hmm. You know, how are we addressing this issue? Um, and there again, there is much more openness uh, coming um, and it's accelerating, which uh, I mean, I can observe in my little universe. Um, which is, which is, I think, very good trends. Mm -hmm. So basically, you're, you're really interested in the people and culture. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And in terms of, um, you know, teaching at Harbour Space, uh, you've been teaching since, what, 2018? 2018, yes. And what do you like about teaching at Harbour Space? Oh, look, all what I told you, um, how I understand teaching, which I told you is basically learning and uh, a mindset of passionate curiosity and a mindset of, um, and I would apply this also to students to make every student shine brighter afterwards mm. and have some more insights would not be possible in, 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 in other educational institutions. I would, um, or at least it would be a major challenge. So, uh, the students which are here are exceptional, exceptional in their quest of learning something, mm -hmm. in their quest of going into a zone of discomfort, in their engagement. Um, the assignments they get, uh, it's, I mean, people strive for them. They want more, they want to learn, they want to do more. Um, it's fascinating to work with a limited number of students where it really becomes more a, a, a mentoring relationship than, than just teaching. Mm -hmm. um, the concept of modules, three weeks in a row. You know, if I remember very well, because these 45 hours is like um, one hour, 15 minutes. I used to have during one whole year in university, once a week, you have a lesson that comes up to the same amount. Forget about even starting to compare what we can do in one module to what I learned at that time. Just content intensity and reflection wise. It is impossible. It is so uncomparable. 
you can do so much more with so much more depth and um, and so much more engagement I see on the other side. It's just a very different ball game. And I remember I can tell you, yeah, I never said this publicly actually, so my students don't know. My wife knows it. Mm. I told her the first fintech class in November 2018, I still remember vividly. I had prepared the tum 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 and first week, Thursday evening, I come home, I tell my wife, I don't know what to do. She said, what's up? She said, I'm done. That's it. This was my three weeks. I'm out of content. <laughs> this is what I had planned to do. Yeah. This is the, the speed and the drive which is developed in such an institution. Because people are asking for more assignments. They ask questions. You jump to the next topic. You reflect on it. Another idea comes. You can come with a topic you had in mind later at this point in time because it fits. It's, it's such an interactive, intense process. Um, that happens quickly, yeah. Yeah, so, so I, I understood, wow, okay. And it was my first experience in this intensity. So I learned my lesson for all future courses. But uh, I just mentioned this because it was such a great analogy for me to see the old world, which yeah. I had prepared for, and the new world. Yes. So and how did you um, adapt to that? Absolutely. <laughs> and you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a dialogue. With students, it's a dialogue. Um, and, and that is fascinating. I mean, it is, um, I think um, it is a big step towards uh, what education in future should look like. And, um, and I find this fascinating. And again, very grateful, very humbled that I'm able to be part of this. Right. So the so the way Harbour Space, you know, incorporates teaching and learning by doing and developing their own business and also getting experience. You think universities should Oh yeah, yeah. Incorporate yeah, yeah. It, it, it no I mean it's just no comparison. You know, it's so interesting if I look at my friends and the kids of my friends and what they do at university and um and how much it's still so close to what I used to do. You have a certain test, your knowledge is being checked. Multiple choices, this is right, this is wrong. I mean, this in 2021, come on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, any not like we will have a test and exam on, on, on Friday. Um, in my, we will have two exams, one is on Friday. Um, and you know, for me, one of the topics was, okay, what is an exam which I can do where even if they have access to all internet, it is still relevant. It doesn't give them any answers, but they will develop something. So I call these exams usually explorations. Yes. Because they're given real life tasks. Yeah. And they can Google as much as they want. There is no solution for that because this case does not exist. Mm -hmm. I made it up mm -hmm. that the company X is in a situation Y. Uh, you are the CEO. What would you do? Great. Um, where I want actually an exam to be an intense process of thinking and reflection and going outside of the box. Mm -hmm. um, because this is what they will face all the time outside. Yes, exactly. It's real life situations. They will never be in a situation where there's 20 multiple choice and they have to guess which one is right or wrong. This is not how life is. Mm. Life is a never ending school. Yes. So you better get learning by trying out and applying and adjusting again. So. Mm. 
yes it's absolutely um the way things should be uh developing great. in an educational institution great and and you obviously love being in barcelona and you were here during the pandemic yes year. absolutely and just what was your biggest learning from the pandemic for yourself my biggest learning for the pandemic was um for me personally it's been a like a tragedy in general for me personally it was a, a blessing in many ways um one of the things I, i take many things out one of the things i take mainly out is that and which i'm sure will not change afterwards um i spend usually minimum two usually three hours a day on my own learning so when i study new subjects i prepare some content i listen to things uh i've never had such a productive time than in the last 12 months um and i plan to continue doing this okay so, so not not stopping this so this is one of the things i um i really took out the second thing is to question myself much more on um where do i get intensity and focus in life if all the external offers are not there traveling going out meeting friends and this has been a fascinating process to create this intensity and focus but basically within your walls um very very inspiring actually journey and 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 and, and thought mm. so this is one um And we tried like different things in, in, in the family. Um, that's one big, big lesson and learning I got out where I know that I can create it. It can, it's with me all the time. And, but it was a good reminder for that. Mm. And intensity and focus without being distracted by the outside Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Look, I mean, that's how I would, you know, very quickly summarize. Life is all about intensity and focus. Do something and do this with full heart. And um, do one thing at a time and do this with full heart. Mm. And I, I had to realize that a lot of this was also nourished by the fact that there was a lot of going on outside. Yes, you know? true. And, and now even distraction means you're still there. Same room, same wall, perhaps you go out to another room. But, and, and this had an impact on me and I realized, okay, I need to now re-adapt my brain and imagine. And you know, the brain is a magical instrument. Mm. Um, um, and, and that's one thing I, I, I learned and reflected on. It's this fascinating book, Seven and a Half Lessons on the Brain. Lisa, I think Barrett. Mm. And one of the examples she comes up with is... Um, The brain is an expectation and imagination instrument. So she comes up with this example when you are super thirsty and you drink water. The feeling that ah, the signals of the body which calm down because there's water in your body, they come after 10, 20 seconds. You feel, ah, now I got water. Mm. Physiologically, it takes 20 minutes until the water hits the places which were asking, man, you need water. But the brain has managed the expectations of these parts saying, relax, water is on the way. Your brain can tell yourself stories. 
you want to tell yourself stories, use it. Otherwise, it tells the stories which are somewhere uncoordinated, unstructured. You want to create something actively, use your brain for it. It's yeah. strong in that. Yeah. So that's something I learned. Manage it, but it's about managing your brain as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and one last question. What book are you reading at the moment? Um, I'm currently um, reading a book by Adam Grant. I love this man. Yeah. Amazing. And think again. Mm. Uh, very thought provoking. Um, I have actually in the afternoon at four, I have a, I have a, um, an event with him. Um, and I'm really looking like looking forward to further reading this. It's a fascinating book. So uh, that's one of the books I read right now. Okay. I usually read three books in parallel. So that's one of them. And what's this book about, teaching about? Uh, Think Again is about um, the importance of rethinking and how you actually do it. And what are the biases which prevent you from rethinking? And I like really, he's very simple. He's very concrete. Um, so it's, it's, it's really a great book. I can only recommend it. Okay. And what about music are you listening to? Oh, um, look, I have, <laughs> that's, that's interesting one. I discovered, and I love this song, it's uh, by Ed Sheeran, Afterglow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm very often listening now to, um, you know, in the 15th, 16th centuries, there were, um, uh, which was a very, very active, creative time in, in India and uh, Pakistan. And uh, Kabir, Amir Khosro, writers and uh, philosophers who basically wrote philosophical things, but put music around them. And I listen a lot to that. Um, because there it's, it's not just the musical aspect, but also the... the um, the words. The words have, and the meaning. The words have meaning. Absolutely. So, yeah. uh, and there is, for example, by um, 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 by Kabir, beautiful like like line which says, um, which is you know a talk um, of a person to himself or herself saying, look. I've been searching for meaning all my life. Meaning, where are you? And the, the answer it's in, the, in the poem is, look, I've been residing in you all the time. You just never noticed me. And it's a very, it goes, I, I simplified it. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful stanza. Uh, and actually, I will conclude with this. It's just one line. I'll briefly sing it. And uh, then we have covered this yes. indirectly expressed wish of yours also. Wonderful. So, Moko kaha dhundre bandhe Maito tere paas hoon Moko kaha dhundre bandhe Maito tere paas hoon Thank you so much. Wonderful, Hannes. Very good. Love thank it. Thank you. Well, Hannes, thank you so much for joining us today. And it's been my pleasure. And I would, I'd happily talk to you all afternoon. 
But uh, there's so much to elaborate on and your mind elaborates. So thank you very much and look forward to hearing more from you. Thank you and thanks for the great dialogue. Really appreciate it. Okay. <laughs> this was another episode of the See You Tomorrow podcast, introducing you to brilliant minds and ideas. Find us on the YouTube channel, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcast. As always, see you next Thursday.